Hi, thanks for tuning in to the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. My name is David Smith, and I'm your host. And in this episode, I had the distinct pleasure to talk to CEOs who all broadly represent different swaths of the healthcare ecosystem. And because these associations are necessarily Medicaid focused, we really tried to, to target our discussion on the impacts of the broader pandemic, the implications for the underserved and the vulnerable, and then really try to bird dog our way, so to speak, into Medicaid-related issues. But it felt important to talk to these individuals because, number one, they're just incredible people and amazing leaders in our industry. But number two, they do have a perspective from their respective walks of life and professions on really important things we collectively need to be thinking about as it pertains to Medicaid. First, Ken Crayer, who is the president of the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. This is a trade group based in Washington, D.C. that largely focuses on intermediaries or brokers. And if you're wondering what on earth do brokers have to do with Medicaid directly, well, I would argue quite a bit. Brokers fundamentally help employers make key decisions about how they provide benefits and how they purchase commercial insurance uh, as a means of those benefits. And of course, that makes up more than 50% of the total coverage we have in this country. What happens in the commercial insurance space, how employers think, feel, respond, particularly in a world where smaller employers are moving more and more folks to the individual exchanges under the Affordable Care Act through health reimbursement accounts. There are implications for how the broader market functions and for folks that might be at the lower end of the the socioeconomic spectrum uh, who may find themselves eligible for Medicaid at some point, how they access the system, how they use the system. So employers have a really big impact structurally and systematically throughout uh, the industry, which has downstream effects, certainly for Medicaid. So we will get Ken's perspective on this period and the implication for employers vis-a-vis brokers. Second guest in this episode is CC Conley. CC is the CEO of another trade group in Washington uh, called the Alliance of Community Health Plans. This is a group of community-based health plans. In some cases, these are standalone community-oriented plans. In other cases, they might be part of a broader health system, a a provider-sponsored plan to use that terminology. Typically though, these are not the big Uniteds, Blue Cross Blue Shields. These are are plans that could be very big, very small. They could be for-profit, non-profit, but they have a much different orientation than larger national plans or plans that might be publicly traded. And these plans happen to do a lot of work in Medicaid, and they think a lot about provider relationships, networks, social determinants, mental health, all the things we've talked about in this uh, season of the Medicaid Transformation Podcast. My guests are all wonderful people. I count all of them as friends, and I was richly rewarded with expanding my own understanding on some key issues as we talked about the pandemic, how different industries have weathered the COVID period, 
economic implications and then the overall views on whatever this next phase of healthcare is going to look like. Certainly strong Medicaid implications throughout those discussions. So enjoy the perspective from these professionals. Thanks for tuning in. Ken, thanks for spending a few minutes with us. You lead an organization called the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers, and we know how much the the current recession will continue to shape the payer landscape. I think your voice, your credibility, and expertise is is going to provide a really uh, useful data point here. So I appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad to be here, David. The more good minds that work on this, these issues, the, the better off we all are. These are crazy times for sure. To say the least. What are you seeing right now from your vantage point and with your members? What's changing? In what ways are you seeing the economic stress of the moment impact your members' health care? I'm going to talk about it from two perspectives. The first one is from a client perspective, because that's where my members are focused on dealing with their clients. And to call this uh, a a marketplace in disarray would be an understatement. The payers themselves, these businesses, these clients are going through a combination of an an incredible economic downturn along with a global health crisis. So you put the two together and it's a perfect storm. They're concerned about their own operations. They're concerned about their clients' operations. I will say that initially as the pandemic hit, in March, April, and May, I think that most of our members were very focused on the survival and the health of their clients. They were very client focused. They still are very client focused as the number of lives uh, were reduced because the employment roles were being reduced. There was risk going on. There was real concern about how long this was gonna last, how long these organizations could last. But I think all in all, the economy combined with the health crisis has frozen some of the efforts that the industry was undertaking earlier in the year around costs and payment structures and who was paying, et cetera. As you've talked with your members, what sense are you getting about the the decline or the contraction in commercial coverage? Because we know this is hitting restaurants, it's hitting retailers and other businesses that kind of rely much more on human contact than it's hitting businesses like yours or or others. Are your members reporting an alarming contraction in commercial coverage, a a lot of uh, reduction in force? Has it been tempered in some way? Are you surprised by anything you're seeing or hearing from your members? Well, what I am surprised at is that there's more fear out there of what's about to happen versus what's actually happening. So I think the PPP plan worked in many ways. It kept people on the payrolls. There were furloughs, but a lot of the benefits components were maintained during that period. Two or three months ago, we talked a bit about the change in the social compact in this country. And and one of the themes under that heading we discussed was the way employers could shift the way they view their obligations in this historic context of of providing health insurance. Health insurance has kind of been a mainstay in America, you know, since the Second World War. How how do you think that shift is going to play out? I think we're going to see a total transformation 
of the work relationship between an employer and an employee. I think it's going to become so fundamentally different than it has been. And the reason for that is I think there's going to be a de-emphasis, and this is going to cause some concern uh, by some people. I think there's going to be a de-emphasis on the dollars. Profitability is going to be important, but it is not going to be as important as having the employee base that you need to get the job done. And I think the employees are going to demand a whole array of changes in the, it's a social contract, it's how we do business, it's how we interact, it's how we relate to each other. One of the interesting things out of this whole crisis has been that employers are a very trusted source of information. And for that reason and that reason alone, I think people are going to look to their employers in a different way than they had. What may happen with employer-provided health care is a question mark. But the other pieces, the social pieces, the concern about kids in school and kids at home and how we work and how we commute and the safety and security of people in their offices, I think it's all going to become a, a big, big factor. And I do think the one big health-related piece that's going to get a lot of attention and, and I think it's a huge opportunity for both my segment of the industry as well as the industry overall, is the mental health component is going to become the number one most critical component because people are working in a different environment, different levels of anxiety, and we have to deal with it in order to have uh, a functioning organization. In the context of COVID and knowing that Everybody is feeling some level of fatigue, some level of mental duress, increased levels of anxiety or depression as a result of this. Are you seeing brokers and or employees take active measures beyond the traditional employee assistance programs to focus on wellness, to focus on mental health in the workplace during this period? Agents and brokers or consultants, employee benefits consultants, are being asked to provide information around all kinds of services that have never been looked at for the business environment. For example, there are a number of firms that are providing to their clients information regarding groups of mental health professionals that using telemedicine has become so critical. The idea of being able to have check-ins with people, those are the kinds of things that, that are going to change and that are changing. It's a good thing. There was a time in business where it was considered weak to have a mental health problem. And that's not the case anymore. And that's a changed environment. We have our mental health and we have our physical health. And they're both big question marks. So I think this is a really encouraging period. Historically, the, the way we've watched benefits consultants and brokers help support employers in these spaces have generally been through wellness programs or employee assistance programs. There's always been a level of derision or skepticism about how effective some of those programs really are, particularly on the physical health side. Do you think we, we create a new vehicle or a new approach to this that better hits on the needs of, of employees and, and really helps to fulfill that commitment by employers. Yeah, I, definitely, David. These programs are going to be held accountable. They have to produce uh, a return. That's going to make it different. The expectations are higher. They are not pretty add-ons. They're not bells and whistles anymore. They're critical components of a healthy workplace. 
that's going to mean that those programs themselves are not going to be just like the employee assistance programs, which were there and they weren't really having an impact. I also think that there's a component here of if you get the mental health right, the physical health may follow. So it may be cost reductions in some other areas, but I think it's an interesting time because the demand is going to be different than it has been. And I think the expectations are going to be higher. And I think the individuals who use the programs are going to have higher expectations of them and have better expectations of what they should and should not do. Yeah, it resonates a lot with me. I think it's exactly right, both in the shifting role of the employer and what their expectations are going to be of brokers and consultants and helping to, to facilitate uh, that function. Talk, Ken, just a little bit about any shifts or changes you're detecting in the way in which em- employers, consultants, brokers are, are working with payers. And if there are new things emerging from that area, and then support some of the things we're, we're talking about. David, the entire use of technology in the connecting of the different parties has changed. There's been attempts over the years to try to use technology to provide more information, better transparency, better idea of what programs are effective, et cetera. And they've been handled okay. There's not a lot of interoperability. I hate that word, but There's not a lot of connection that works. But I do think that what's happened is now everybody's gotten serious about technology. It's a tool that's necessary. And I think business clients, as well as individual employees of those clients, are demanding a level of useful technology that provides them the kinds of information that they need. And I think the industry has to respond. And I think that's what they are doing. What I'm hearing today is people really using this time to identify real tools that are going to have real impact on people. The ability of of us to have access to our own information is huge. And we know in this pandemic that there's going to be a little bit more information floating around about who we are and who we aren't, because it's the only way we're going to control this thing. And, And I think that's going to be helpful in terms of changing the mindset of a lot of people. Technology is a huge component of what's going on. And I think that the firms, it's interesting, I was, I was chatting with a firm yesterday that is spending 15% of their revenue, this is a brokerage firm, on technology, and it's going up, and it's all about consumer-facing technology. It's that last mile of the transaction. They're dealing with their business clients who have access to the data, but now it's, it's a way for them to go directly to those uh, individual employees and the kind of information they're gathering. So it's pretty powerful. It's exciting that the industry is just not sitting on its hands. Well, I, I want to pick up on that thread for just a second because it's, it's so important to the stuff we talk about. What are some of the, the, the most common technology platforms, not companies, but, but functions, competencies, What are brokers trying to solve with technology and engaging members? Well, you know, the the first one, the the most important one is just providing kinds of information, whether it be um, groups of doctors, their effectiveness, the, the kinds of services or benefits that an individual company are providing. There's just a lot of information that has been challenging to get to the consumer level that I think we're seeing a change in that. 
we're also seeing more of a platform use. We've had benefit admin platforms for a while, but it's how you interact. It's the other pieces that get added to it. Telehealth alone is a really huge component. The ability for an employer to pre-screen their individuals, use the technology, even the base technology like Zoom is really helpful and helps the cost effectiveness of what we're doing. That's the good news. Somebody said, well, we were being nudged along on the technology. Well, now we got shoved and it's at every level. And frankly, the other piece of this that I'm conscious of is some of this stuff is front room and some of this is back room. And one thing that clients don't really care about is they don't care about our back room. They just want it to work. Those are the kinds of investments I'm seeing. I'm really excited about where this is going. I think people understand the use of technology and they're investing in it. And they're seeing the returns, but the returns are different today. And I think that's another key factor. The success of an employee and their ability to serve a client is more important today than the necessary profitability of that client. And I think that's a shift. And I think if that shift happens across the board, which I believe it will, it's going to change the environment in which we're working in. We may see some costs come down. We may see some cost shifting. Let's round out the discussion by um, zeroing in a little bit more on Medicaid. We started this talk by hitting on the, the contraction of commercial coverage, which of course means an expansion of Medicaid beneficiaries. What are you and your members hopes or expectations from government in these publicly funded health programs like Medicaid and Medicare? Those programs typically are, are either underfunded or less efficient um, with the, the use of dollars in the marketplace. Are, are you uh, thinking about those things, are you having conversations with policymakers about how to use this moment to improve the delivery system so those programs can be sustainable? What has to look or feel different with a new delivery system? Our biggest concern right now is that we're going to overwhelm the system. And in that process, the system could freeze. In discussions with policymakers, we've been talking about the COBRA extension and the subsidies around COBRA to try to basically soften the blow on Medicaid and allowing the traditional market or the, the standard market to provide those coverages in the interim. I think long-term though, we're going to see a, a dramatic shift. It, it all depends on what happens in the, the private market. We think 156 million people who are receiving their benefits through an employer makes sense, it works, it's worked well, it's been efficient. There's a number of cost factors that we can play with that need to shift. And those are the kinds of things after this transition that we're in, we're going to see more activity around that because we've gotta be sensitive to the payer. Uh, the payer is, we're shoving them into a corner if we're not careful and we're going to have health providers, we won't have health carriers, there'll be TPAs instead, and you know they'll be self-insured. But I think the cost piece is the one that we have to come out of this with some real dramatic changes in. Yeah, I think it's well said. I know these are topics that are critical importance to your colleagues, and it's heartening to hear both that there is a, a recognition of a, of a need to go deeper and more broadly in the areas of mental health and, and other forms of support and that technology is being increasingly employed to do those things and 
I agree with you. I, I have a sense of optimism that despite what a, what a terrible year this has been, it's going to create a set of conditions that change how we think and, and feel about our health system, the value we expect from it across the board. So uh, the insights are incredibly helpful. I always enjoy having a conversation with you, David. You prod me to think even more aggressively than I have. And I totally agree with you. 2020 is not a year that we want to repeat, but I think the changes that that 2020 is causing, both in terms of the social structure of our country, as well as the political structure, is going to have a positive impact on us all. Our economy is gonna find its level. I'm an optimist, uh, I always have been, and I think that there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic today as, as I sit here alone in my office, but I have 40 people working somewhere and they're all doing their jobs. We have a shared sense of optimism. Let's hope that we're talking again this time next year and we're reflecting on that terrible but critical period that's, that led us to a better place. Well, Cece, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. This is one of a, a handful of episodes where we're talking to association leaders, primarily with, with strong operations in Washington and you were the person we wanted to talk to to try to put some perspective on the payer lens of, of this year. And so maybe I'll just start with an open-ended question and have you describe a little bit about the payers that are your members and some of the general observations you're making about their uh, strategy and their reaction to this dumpster fire of a year. <laughs> yeah happy to. So the Alliance of Community Health Plans is an intentionally small membership organization. We're based in Washington, D.C., and our members are all nonprofit, provider-aligned community health plans. And each of those elements is very important because, as you know, David, they essentially make up a unique model in healthcare today. It's um, often seen in an integrated health system, but we take a slightly broader lens in that a number of our community health plans are not integrated systems, but have these very close partnerships and collaborations with providers. And we believe quite strongly that that is a very positive way to approach coverage and care. Instead of having an insurer sitting across the table from the provider and battling over slice of the pie, our members align their incentives. So they align the financial incentives, they align the health outcome incentives and all that they do. And we feel that that is really a promising uh, future for the US health system. And so we at ACHP spend a great deal of time and energy trying to help educate people on that model and also to try to advance it. There was a podcast at the end of 2018 where you talked about the, the payer provider integration as being tantamount to, I think the term was the holy grail. Talk to Cece just a little bit about that study, what you were trying to accomplish uh, and what you observed. I think that it's highly relevant in this new COVID environment. The research was funded by a grant from PCORI, and we did in fact want to go across our membership 
and identify and document ways in which we believe that model is serving individuals, communities, and ultimately the nation better. And when we say serving better, it means from a health and well-being perspective for an individual families and communities, but also from a value perspective of really getting the most out of the healthcare dollars spent. And so we were really pleased with so many of these case studies that we documented in all different organizations, in all different parts of the country, different business entities. So whether it was in Salt Lake City, where our member Select Health is part of Intermountain, and that organization very successfully partnered together and over a period of time brought down what was a high rate of inappropriate early inductions for delivery, which was translating into many more premature babies being born, and with that, a lot of associated additional high costs, they brought that down to zero, David. And as a result, fewer preemies born, healthier moms, and dollars saved. So that is really the sort of win-win that we talk about when you see that true collaboration and you see incentives that are aligned because everyone in that organization, whether they were sitting in the health plan or they were sitting in the hospital or in a physician group practice, they were all focused on improving the health and well-being of the mothers and the babies, and as a result, saved everyone dollars. So when you hear me say something like Holy Grail, that to me is the kind of story that we've been able to unearth time and time again. Now, when you fast forward to 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic, I believe that there is good evidence to show that in particular providers that were in these sorts of arrangements, whether integrated or risk-bearing models, have weathered this storm better because you had money from the health plan transferring regularly on a set payment schedule, either through a capitated rate or some sort of a value-based arrangement model that really kept them in business and kept them focused on delivering good, high-value health to their patients, in many cases via telemedicine, as opposed to worrying about volume that plummeted. So I, I think that's a really good segue to something I've been thinking a lot about and, and something I know you and I kind of have an active discussion about. So if, if you were going to lead with the premise or the assumption that the coronavirus situation coupled with the recession was going to create greater financial pressure for the delivery system at large, and, and I, I think that's not an unreasonable assumption to make, and I'm either a, a payer or provider who, who did not organize one of these integrated arrangements prior to 2020, 
do you believe I am now more motivated or less motivated to pursue that? And, and, and who is the party that would have the greater motivation? In other words, Cece, do you think this moment is an accelerant in pursuing that holy grail or that we will return to some status quo view of it across the system as, as we've had in recent years? It's a great question. It's certainly my hope and belief that it will be an accelerant in a number of places, uh, a number of competitive markets or places where you have progressive visionary leaders that will grab this opportunity. It won't be across the board, I'm sorry to say. We are already seeing a number of delivery systems that are just back to chasing revenue in person uh, in old bricks and mortar businesses that are typically where you can generate more dollars from more tests, more scans, more referrals. And we know that there is compelling data to suggest that overuse, inappropriate, low value care is part of the underlying problem in our US system. And so unfortunately, probably too many of our industry leaders are after having a very difficult spring, no doubt about it, and a terrible shock to their systems that's been painful for those organizations. But unfortunately, we're seeing too many that are just uh, chasing back after volume. I understand it, but I think that it is a short-sighted view. And that's when we look to policymakers to help add in incentives to drive value because some players in the market may need those extra nudges. How has the payer disposition shifted during this period, uh, if at all? And, and do you get a sense that the payers are prioritizing this notion of, of integrating care in pursuit of a more efficient delivery system? Or do you believe there, there's also a bit of a status quo? Obviously, payers are not under nearly the same financial strain that health systems underwent in the spring, yet, yet they are just as susceptible to the implications of a base inefficiency in the delivery system or inefficiencies wrought by things like the recession and coronavirus. So, so payers obviously have a strong dog uh, in the fight. Is, is their strategic disposition shifting? In some instances, yes. And what I would say is that while payers did not take the immediate direct financial hit that the provider side did throughout the spring, what payers are having to contend with is enormous uncertainty. And it makes it incredibly difficult to design and price products with this much uncertainty. So that's the challenge that 
payers are having to manage now and probably for quite some time. The community health plans, which tend to run 2% margins, I would say, based on our members, they can take a longer term view. And that can be very positive, not just for the company, but really for the community. And so, for instance, several of our CEOs have been saying that they're really thinking in terms of a two-year budget cycle right now. Kind of unusual, a little bit, you know, unconventional. I'm sure there are going to be some auditors out there that will chastise me that you can't have a two-year fiscal year. It's a misnomer. But thinking in that way really enables them then to think about longer-term investments that are going to benefit members and the community. And that's really where we get into conversations around social needs, unmet social needs. So we've had many of our community health plans that have made advanced payments to physician group practices or interest-free loans or other support. I think that will continue. They've also taken a lot of steps waiving co-payments, deductibles, out-of-pocket expenses for mental health care services, telehealth services, a whole wide range of things. So it's a little bit of a different approach and mentality to running your business. At the time of this recording, we're starting to see all the Q2 financial data come in from the publicly traded payers, which is painting a picture we all anticipated we would see, a picture that shows record profits. Are you actively seeing a distinction between those nonprofit community plans and the way they're reinvesting any excess or surplus of, of their earnings versus those others that uh, are, are national? And, and where do you see that, that distinction most prevalent, either in, in types of investment or types of payment or geographies or lines of business or, or the like? Well, we've always felt that, that our members take a different approach for all of these reasons that we've been discussing. They're mission-driven organizations. Many of them have actually, you know, written into their mission and vision, staying to two or three percent margin for instance with all of the other revenue, such as it may be in a given year, being reinvested. So there's been that fundamental difference from long before the pandemic. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that some of these much larger payers simply have a lot more money to give to important initiatives or programs or things. So I don't in any way want to dismiss or discount the ways in which we are seeing larger companies responding to this crisis, because I think we're seeing everyone really try to do their part It's just that they have to operate in a somewhat different kind of environment. And, you know, for us at ACHP, we like the the nonprofit provider aligned formulation. It's 
it's something that we happen to believe in and we're seeing a lot of good activity and success. You know, Harvard Pilgrim in Massachusetts does not own physician group practices or hospitals. It's a standalone community health plan, which has pumped, you know, somewhere on the order of 40 to $50 million into that local community in a variety of ways, David, including doing testing certain frontline uh, workers throughout this crisis to direct dollars going to physician group practices, to investing in local small businesses. So that's kind of one terrific example. I know up in Buffalo, Independent Health, another standalone nonprofit community health plan, but because it was already in a number of these value-based arrangements, they were able to ensure that the physicians in the Buffalo area were able to continue delivering care really without a hitch throughout the worst of this crisis in New York. And so those are the sort of things that we're really celebrating. And we're hoping that others in the industry and in the policy world can see how well they've performed. We know there's likely going to be another spending bill that gets uh, litigated and, and, and probably passed for coronavirus relief. How are you thinking about your priorities and the priorities really for the health system at large over the coming weeks? What, what are the kinds of things you would hope to see in a spending bill? And as you think about the changed political composition, how are you thinking about 2021? Well, I would certainly encourage your listeners to go to our website, achp.org, often, or follow us on Twitter um, because we are constantly updating and putting forth a lot of um, ideas via social media and media and communicating directly with the leaders uh, of Congress. Right now, <clears throat> our proposals to Congress have focused on ensuring, especially through this public health emergency, that we have a stable insurance market and that there is coverage and care available to all Americans. So that means continue to address the uninsured rate in this country, which sadly is rising because of the increase in unemployment. So opening up a special enrollment period nationally for the individual market exchange so that more people, whether they had a disqualifying event or simply didn't have coverage in the past, that there are few barriers to getting that coverage and care today. We want everybody to, to be able to get uh, a coronavirus test if they've been exposed. We're also lobbying for increased federal dollars for both testing and contact tracing because I think we are seeing that this virus has turned out to be incredibly potent and dare I say devious. And every time that we think things are calming down, you know, it's like whack-a-mole and it pops up somewhere else. So we have got to continue all of those robust public health measures, which that burden cannot fall entirely on the industry. The industry must and has stepped up to do its part, but we're now in a public health crisis that requires leadership and dollars from our federal leaders. We've also suggested with respect to Medicaid, which I know you care about, 
besides the initial increases in the FMAP, which were very smart in the early going, we've proposed a concept around a Medicaid stabilization fund, which would enable policymakers to target additional Medicaid dollars to the areas that are most greatly impacted by COVID-19. And there are a number of ways that you can do that, but it's really being very smart with your additional federal dollars by targeting them where they are most needed. And then there are things in the insurance world that can kind of act as stop gaps, whether it's a reinsurance pool and different risk corridors. And so some of those concepts, they may not seem necessary right at this moment, but given the uncertainty of the virus, we just want to make certain that policymakers have an appreciation for the importance of a stable market going forward. Because as you can imagine, if people are losing their jobs, then losing their health insurance, they've potentially been exposed to a deadly virus, but they don't want to get tested and they don't want to seek care. We have just magnified those problems so many times over, and we want to make certain that nothing is going to make things worse during this terrible time. Let's pivot here and just close out with talking a little bit about virtual care. How have you seen your members respond to the adoption of any digital solutions, synchronous telemedicine or asynchronous platforms or different community referral exchanges? Have you seen a greater rush to adoption, to operationalization of those resources in this moment as a means to to reach out and provide support to their members? Oh, yes. Absolutely. All of the above. And it is truly one of the exciting, bright spots in what has otherwise been a dreary year with respect to healthcare. Across the board, our members are seeing phenomenal growth in use of all telehealth services. It goes from primary care visits to emailing with your doctor to most importantly, perhaps of all through this crisis, behavioral health or mental health care services just soaring. And, you know, the increases at our member plans are in the thousands percentages increases. We did a national poll a while back and the usage of telehealth nationally had tripled from pre-pandemic to during the pandemic. And of all of those users, 89% said they were pleased with the consumer experience. And now it is absolutely imperative that we do not go backward. There are obviously big questions to resolve for you know, post-pandemic permanent state, if you will. Right. Some of those are regulatory, some of those are around payment. We believe that telehealth has to be a tool accessible to the patient and physician to use as they see fit, but it should not be an additional fee-for-service code because if that's the case, we're just exacerbating the fundamental underlying problem in our healthcare system of volume over value. 
So at our member plans, the goal is always to incorporate telehealth or virtual care into that toolbox that the providers have available and to use it as a complete approach or a holistic approach to the health of the individual and the family. And as I say, we're seeing phenomenal uptake and satisfaction right now, and it would just be a terrible shame if we moved backwards. Well, Cece, thanks for taking the time today and for all the work you're doing. David, thank you so much.